Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we will be talking to Sam Ladner. Sam holds a PhD in sociology and has studied work, technology and organizations in both academic and applied settings, working for companies such as Microsoft and Amazon. She will be talking to us about the type of relationships people build with software and devices from the Excel to Apple to storage solutions like the cloud. Lastly, she will be talking about what it's like to work in the technology sector alongside business specialists as a social scientist. We hope you enjoy it. Hi guys, welcome to The Human Show. Today we have Sam Ladner here with us. Um, hi Sam. Hello. Good to have you with the show today. My pleasure. Uh, we're gonna, we want to dive right into it and, and kind of ask you a question that we normally ask most of our speakers, which is what's sociology, sociology and technology? Yes. Sociology and technology are, have actually a very long history and I feel sociologists have a burden and a duty and the privilege of infusing technology with human uh, insight and justice and fairness. So I know a lot of my colleagues in sociology don't believe that. They don't feel like it's the same uh, for them. But for me, being a sociologist and always having a lifelong interest in technology, it's my duty to uh, meet with, work with, and help uh, technologists make better uh, technological decisions. And, and what has been your, your personal path with this, um, with this career so far? It's been quite circuitous. My uh, background originally, I was a journalist. I, I was a technology journalist, which you know kind of makes sense when you think about it. It's it's a a person who uh, you know observes and you know reports back. But I, I found it a little limiting. I didn't get to answer the big questions that I really wanted to answer. So I decided to go back to graduate school, and uh, in the end, I, I got a PhD in sociology. All the way through, I because I had a career before that, and I had done a lot of uh, technological work. Um, so I worked all the way through my PhD uh, doing technology uh, research, essentially. Uh, at the time, you know, we still didn't we didn't really call it UX at the time. We, uh, we started to, but it was it was human insights for tech and I was building websites. I worked for some design agencies. I built websites for big companies while I was doing my PhD. And when I finished my PhD, I actually fully intended to become a professor. And I had hoped that my professional experience would actually be a benefit, but it was not. Um, it was not something that universities were very interested in. So luckily, I had all this great experience. So I just went full into uh, consulting and I ran my own research company uh, for four years where I had a lot of clients, a lot of different clients and not many of them were tech focused. 
some of them were. And I always try to put a tech bent on the on the sociological insights that I uncovered and the ethnographic work that I did. But in the end, I really had an enormously wonderful opportunity to go down to Microsoft. And that's what I did. So I went to Microsoft and I worked there for three years. And after that, then I went to Amazon uh, and I worked there and I, I shipped a lot of products and I worked with a lot of really amazing technologists and designers and product managers. And just recently, uh, I returned uh, temporarily, you know, to Toronto. And, you know, my life here is I'm teaching for a year here in um, Ontario College of Art and Design and uh, probably got another book in me. That's where I'm at. <laughs> well, um, I think I'm, I'm really excited to read it. Um, I'm, I'm As I've been telling you earlier, I'm a huge fan of your writing and um, I'm, I'm finding a lot of pleasure in your book um, right now. And for our listeners that are listening to this, we're going to link, link her um, book down below for you to have a look. But coming back to this kind of fascinating kind of circus journey into um, the world of um, journalism and sociology um, from your and business from from your experience working with these businesses um what is the nature that that you see of the relationship that people build with with technological products oh uh, well it, that's a really interesting question because a lot of people would say it's a very you know transactional and pragmatic relationship mm -hmm. uh you know oh i use the atm to get money or i use my headphones to listen to music But it's actually far deeper than that. People construct meaning um, through the use of the objects that they use. You know, in the words of Sherry Turkle, we, we love the objects mm -hmm. we work with and we work with the objects we love. So, you know, people develop strong attachments and some might call it irrational uh, mm -hmm. attachments to objects. And those objects can be digital as well. Mm -hmm. So software, for example, becomes a source of, of great... Um, anxiety for some people it becomes a source of uh you know superpowers for others so we we do have both a pragmatic and a and a emotional re relationship with technology yeah. um and sometimes that emotional relationship kind of overrides some of the pragmatism that a lot of people think are is the only thing you design for yeah you know if you've got a, a technology that is incredibly difficult to use yet people have a deep attachment to it. Uh, it's remarkable how little of that poor usability really, you know, um, gets in the way. Yeah. So what does, what does that do with processes of change and innovation then? Well, unfortunately, what ends up happening, you see a lot of times from product uh, managers, product owners, they may understand that their their user base is extremely loyal and um, they get very fearful of making change to the product uh, because they're afraid of changing uh, a feature when really what they should be afraid of changing is the relationship. Yes. Uh, so, for example, Excel, I remember when I was... Um, just starting at Microsoft and my husband was driving me to work one day and he's an, an accountant and he, he, we were driving past building 36 and up in the window on like the, the fourth floor, somebody had spelled out in post-it notes on the window, Excel. Mm. And he looked up and he said, is that where they make Excel? 
<laughs> and I said, yeah, that's where they make Excel. And he was so excited. It was almost as if he was gawking the red carpet. It he, he couldn't believe that that's where they made Excel. He was very, he's, Excel tends to have that kind of maniacal devotion. A lot of people mm -hmm. have that for Excel. And it's not because of pivot tables. And it's not because of, you know, fill down. Although contribute to it that sense of attachment is the superpower really that Excel gives a lot of people particularly anybody who works with financial data so I think product managers misunderstand that the pragmatic relationship is not driving emotion necessarily it's not all transactional you know you can actually coax users to go new places if they love you um, and if you respect them I, I remember I lived in Amsterdam for two years and I was watching this Dutch, um, the, uh, the Dutch using their bikes as a kind of an extension of their own body. Mm. And there's a lot of bike theft in Amsterdam. Like everybody tells you when you buy a bike, please don't get attached to it because it's going to get stolen in the next three months. Um, and wow. It, uh, yeah. And there's definitely a lot of bike theft. And, you know, I remember first time I lost my bike and it was not a really good bike. Like it was not an expensive good bike, but it was a bike that kind of ex expanded my ability to move. Um, it, it became kind of part of my yeah. own body. It was almost, almost, and it became so natural for me to use it the way it was that for mm -hmm. me, it didn't feel like it was not good you know it felt like it was good enough for me um, and I've developed through repetition and use a kind of a own sense of ownership and enhancement of my abilities with that bike that it became almost like another limb um, yeah so when I lost it I've got like the first few days I've got that I, I've got I had that kind of deep sense of loss and grief that was very interesting to me because I've never felt it before when it came to an object That was the first time. Yeah, that was the first time. And then the second time happened when somebody stole my phone, <laughs> my iPhone. <laughs> oh. I was I was giving a little lecture in, in, was it in Manchester? I think it was in Manchester. Um, they don't quote me on that. But, um, and I left my phone to charge as I was giving that lecture with my, uh, and, and I left it to charge next to the door. And then when I finished the lecture and I went there, the phone was gone. And I had the oh, same yeah. kind of like deep feeling of loss. But what was interesting with the phone versus the bike is that I went and bought another iPhone and then I downloaded everything via the cloud. And it's almost as if I got my actual phone back. Right. Right. Well, that's what's interesting about, you know, I, I think Apple is a good example, a very early adopter of this. I don't think they've codified it in these words, but loss aversion is an incredibly Uh, powerful mm. motivator for humans and I've been through that same experience with an iPhone and you get a brand new one and everything loads and it's basically yeah. the same phone and so the object is a container for mm. the experience yes. and you know you don't lose the experience unless you lose your photos For example, and then your your data. If you do, data loss is catastrophic, it shouldn't be ever something that anybody has to experience. Just this afternoon, I made uh, my husband. I updated his website for him, and I had to adjust the DNS settings in order for for it to work. And I didn't really want to do that because I knew that it was probably going to cause a bit of a hassle. So I did it. And it gave me, you know, a 404 file not found message. And I thought, that's not right. It shouldn't be giving me a 404. And I was like, I just, I was pretty sure I knew it was just propagating. I was pretty sure the DNS was just on its way through. It's going to make its way. It's mm. going to be fine. But I wasn't sure. And, and ironically enough, uh, I also had the data. 
So mm-hmm. I could just reload it. It wasn't a problem. But the sense of loss was still yeah. so powerful that I actually uh, pinged the hosting company and did an online chat with them just to double sure. I said, this is what I've done. This is what I think is happening. Uh, it hasn't propagated, but I don't know how long it's going to take. Is that really what's going on? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yes, that's exactly what's going on. It'll take, you know, four to eight hours probably. Just yeah. refresh this one page and you'll see how far it's propagated. And I had been refreshing and it slowly but surely was it was coming back. But it was almost irrational because I had all, mm-hmm. all the data. Yeah. So coming into that, then what kind of relationships do you think people build with the concept of the cloud? It's interesting that you ask that. You know, a colleague of mine, uh, Elizabeth, who is now at uh, Google, when I, when I worked with her at Microsoft, asked the same kind of question. And she was exploring this concept of like rent versus like membership versus rent, because that was kind of the parameters that the product team was thinking about vis-a-vis cloud type stuff. And, you know, none of this surprised us, the, you know, ethnographic team. Like we all, yeah, okay, that makes total sense. But it did other people. Um, you know, the idea of, of membership or rent is very, uh, they're very different. So like, if you think about the cloud as something like you rent a space in the mm-hmm. cloud, it, you don't really have a sense of connection to something you rent. But if you have a, a, a membership or, or subscription model, it's a it's a different kind of thing, because now you're like, I'm part of this society that gets a regular uh, update from such and such. Mm. It seems very you know, semantic black magic, but it's actually quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the cloud as being essentially um, ephemeral and without substance, on the surface that looks like you can't form any kind of relationship to it. But if you think about, you know, what Marx talked about with uh, fictitious commodities, digital items are like fictitious commodities. They're like money. They mm-hmm. only exist through mutual uh, consensus. Yeah. Oh, I know that that's there. Yes, I know that's there. So, you know, this is not a, a new thing. People have made, you know, uh, agreed that something without substance has value and worth uh, and even shape in some ways. Yes. Uh humans can do that. So the cloud itself doesn't preclude a, an emotional relationship. I think what does is the is the the ways in which it's talked about and the ways in which it's treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, for example, let's say you have a cloud service, like a like a Dropbox type service, and you're constantly having to move your folders around. Mm-hmm. Like you get a notice saying, hey, you guys are, uh, you know, all your folders are in, um, you know, this master root folder and that one's no longer eligible for renting. So we're going to have to get you to move those. Uh, and if you think about that in terms of like, you know, what it means to be actually be a renter, that's kind of what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes the landlord comes and says, hey, my kids are going to move into this house. You can keep the basement part but you have to move everything down there that's the problem with renting no sense of proprietary ownership Mm. so i don't see people doing that with cloud services um in fact i don't think i've experienced that personally yeah but that's the danger that you might face with a cloud-based uh product Mm -hmm. and what what is the connection between um you say rent ownership proprietorship and actual literacy of how you exercise your agency um over this space 
well, I, I think it would be very subtle from a user's perspective. I don't think they would consciously register the difference if you were to call something rent versus mm. member. I don't think they would consciously recognize it as different, but I think it would be a mental model difference yeah. that they might subtly carry into their activities. But do you think would imply uh, the, the membership versus the renter model would imply that you, you have some knowledge um, on how to operate it um, and alter it and change it and, you know, which would imply in return a sense of literacy over how the cloud works and how you could influence or move stuff around in the cloud itself? Well, that's interesting. Um, I'm not convinced that the the instinct to mod or hack uh, a product comes from a sense of ownership so much as a sense of mastery. And mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think ownership infuses mastery necessarily. Uh, you know, there are plenty of people who own many things and have absolutely no concept as how they work mm -hmm. or, or care for how they work and no desire to mod or hack them in any way. Mm -hmm. I think ownership necess doesn't necessarily imply uh, a desire or a, an ability to mod or to hack. Mm. Um, especially if it's kind of like a black box type product, you know, yeah. Apple does this. Generally speaking, most of their products are black box and, you know, it's just a beautiful gilded cage and you don't really care that it's, you know, Steve Jobs's prison uh, because it's really nice in there and, you know, you get to do all the things you want. Um, but as soon as you want to like break out of it a little bit, then you start kind of bumping up against the edges of that gilded cage and it kind of, it can get a little crowded in there and you won't really like it too much. Mm. Most people are not like that with Apple products. They don't really care. Yeah. They're not modding and hacking, you know, not like, like my first computer, I ripped the cover off and like moved the jumpers around and yeah. like installed new RAM and got a new, you know, fan because mine was overheating. You know, the chip I had was too fast, mm. you know, that doesn't happen in Apple products. Mm. So have you seen um, other ways of people exercising their agency over the of the technological product that does not involve modding on hacking? Oh, sure. There's subversion of use. Mm. Absolutely. And sometimes the subversion of the use is not intentional. And sometimes it, it most, most definitely is. Somebody was just telling me about how you can like you know, get out of automatic, you know, some, some services don't let you sub, uh, cancel your subscription easily. They make it really hard. Mm -hmm. And I just heard a tip that you can like, oh, sure, I'll auto sign up. Of course, auto renew, but I'm going to do it through PayPal. And you can accept PayPal, so no problem. Actually, though, I'm going to go to PayPal, I'm going to stop payment every single time. Yeah. So, you know, that is an intentional subversion of a design process that doesn't serve the user. Mm. Um, and one that certainly the, the user does not feel any ownership of. They don't feel ownership over that entire subscription service because it obviously is designed not for them. Yeah. You know, so I would say that that would be an intentional subversion. But there are things like, you know, how people use, like even how I use uh, my Kindle sometimes when I use, I plugged my Goodreads feed into it. And so when I'm reading, I like to export my highlights to Goodreads. And then I use those Goodreads quotes in my papers. It's a workaround. And certainly, and I know for a fact, it is not at all what the Goodreads team has intended. They did not design that. They thought that the, they think that that quote system is like, oh, this is a way for new people to explore books. 
with inspirational quotes. Yeah, that's not how I use it at all. That is that is fascinating. And you know, um, we've we've talked to a lot of people so far on the podcast that 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 explain like this nice um, acts of, of, of subversion of, of technological object. And it's also um, a way for them to kind of make it their own, but also show like how relevant that object is to their work, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what, what does that say to the companies that develop this product? Is that seen as something positive? That kind of subversive use? Yeah, the fact that I remember I've, I've done a few ethnographic projects where I've been requested to do um, user journey maps. You know, um, and one of the often questions that I get when I present the user journey map um, and show how people actually use a specific product, they're like, but we didn't design it like that, even though it's a positive engagement. Right. Um, right. And, and, and these people come to me and they say they're proud to show how they've kind of hacked, but in a good way, no? the, the product to kind of accelerate something or to make it their own, you know, um, and they're very proud of these ways of showing mastery over the, over that product. Um, mm -hmm. And when I present that back to the team of engineers or product managers, they're like, we didn't design it like that. Why don't they use it? Maybe we need to inform them better on how to properly use it, you know? <laughs> yes. So, yes. So it's kind of like in, in that interaction, it shows that they don't necessarily see in, in that act a form of proprietorship, which actually shows engagement with the actual product, no? Yes, I would agree with that. It's interesting because if you think about the product itself as a boundary object, mm -hmm. the you know the product managers that you describe in that example don't really understand that they don't own that product. That it it goes into their customers, their users' world just as much as it goes comes from theirs. So they don't understand that they're you know we have to educate them on how to use it properly. Mm. Well, once it leaves your your world and becomes a boundary object, which is kind of what you wanted it to be um you have to accept that it's going to grow you know i heard a really interesting interview with billy corrigan from uh, smashing pumpkins and they were asking him about you know how do you feel about playing the old hits kind of thing and it took him a really long time to kind of come to this conclusion that you know a song like 1979 doesn't really belong to him even though he wrote it it's not his song hmm. It belongs to everybody. Yeah. And it's very challenging for him to, you know, accept that that song means yeah. something very specific to this listener that he never intended and he doesn't even know about because it's his song. He mm. made it, right? Yes, well, yes. no, it's their song now. You know, it, he it, made peace with them. Yeah, it, it reminded me um, of, of one story that I had when I was doing research work and I was specifically looking into, I was in, in Amsterdam and I was looking into those rituals of transition, you know, when, when kind of kids moving into um, into men or women um, and those processes of, of transition in, in that particular community. And I was talking to this mother who, who was talking about her difficulties in, in, in acknowledging that her son is no longer her son, but it's, it's a man, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and for her, like the, the, that education, education system was a, was a good transition moment for her to kind of see that, you know? So she's like, okay, so now, so she was explaining to me when I was asking her, so when do you think your, your, you will see your son? Or when do you think that moment will come when, when, when he's kind of like on his own and he's a man? And he said, well, that's the moment when he graduates from university and it's supposed to get a job. And that's the moment when I when I kind of think it will be easier for me to see him as a man and not as a child. So I was wondering if, if, if in objects, in, in technological objects and project managers, is there some sort of ritual that you've observed that kind of helps them look at that object um, as, as something else than what it was in the moment they designed and created it and put it out there in the world? Mm. I don't know, my baby's all grown up. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, did you see any kind of 
rituals inside corporations uh, that kind it's of help them <laughs> go through that. I, there's lots of rituals around products getting finished, but that particular idea of it now belongs to the, the users. Mm -hmm. No. Um, so some of the rituals that you'll see around, you know, software shipping or hardware shipping, there's going to be, you know, there's a, a very, you know, early stage design and then, you know, lots of people involved and, and then, you know, it's a convergence, divergence design process, you know, lots of ideas, zeroing in on a few, prototyping, mm -hmm. refining, you know, uh, testing, validating, you know, drama right up into the last moment, you know, to the ship date and typically a launch party, yeah. which is usually after, well after the ship date because, you know, shipping can go wrong. And the launch party can be anything from a very simple like crackers and cheese around somebody's desk to like a very elaborate, you know, huge party uh, with like, you know, Beck playing. It can be quite elaborate, but none of those rituals, you know, the the countdowns and the, the testing and, and the prototyping and the shipping, none of those rituals really say, now this isn't ours. We mm -hmm. don't own this. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you call that out because, you know, oh, once the product, you know, graduates, quote unquote, yeah, graduates yeah. Yes. from prototype to like V1. Now it's let's see where it goes. Mm. Like it's not really conceived of in that way. It's yeah. more like let's see how the users, you know, um, how the user base grows, mm. not let's see how the users own this and turn it into something. Yeah. It takes a great deal of selflessness for that to happen. And not many of those rituals. They're kind of congratulatory, self-congratulatory yeah. rituals. I remember when I was a, in my experience as a product manager, I've seen something similar to a ritual of that, which is kind of like a, um, a ritual of passing the baton to another pro project man, uh, product manager. So you know when yeah. you when you when you have a cycle when I was responsible for a project that in 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 the innovation space that I worked with the cycle of launching something was around three years so um, and and very rarely you get a person to stay on that position for three years especially in an in my um, world of you know innovation in in uh, right. FMCG because everything moves very fast you know so uh, so that that's when you know I was on a project for three years I I researched it launched it um, and then. We when it was launched, I had to move to a different position and I had to hand over that project to a new pro product manager. Right. And in that yes. handing over, there is a, some sort of symbolic expression of where the product is now. And it's a reflection on behalf of both persons, right? Where is it now? What have we achieved? Um, how does yeah. the user see us? What are the objectives for the future? But there's some form of, of, of reflection on that there. And there's also when you have those moments of yearly presentations, right? Where when you present a specific product to a larger audience inside the company, yeah. mm -hmm. there, there's also a kind of a moment of of reflection there or where is the product and who is its user and where are we going with it but mm -hmm. n but nothing has that force of the of the launching process you know and that that powerful engagement and that powerful yeah that force i i would say yeah mm -hmm. so definitely and I think coming to that, there's another ritual that that I've also um, seen uh, that I wonder how how it exists, which is the ritual of killing a product. 
Oh, well, there's many zombie products, right? Yeah, exactly. Around. Exactly. You know, how do you I I've met this wonderful team of ladies when I was working in Amsterdam. They were not they were not social scientists, but they had a, a business that was very interesting. They were helping companies decide to kill stuff, you know, products, um, people even, you know, when when a team gets restructured or when people uh, get out. So they were they were psychologists and they were working with this concept of grieving. You know, they said mm. when when there's a passing um, of any sort, somebody leaves your team, a product leaves your portfolio, there's a natural process of grief and reflection that needs to happen for you to let go of that thing. Yeah. Um, and they were, their whole business model was around creating space for that grieving process to happen inside, um, inside an, a, a group. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when you think about the modern workplace, there's this idea that you you don't bring your uh, you check your emotions at yeah. the door, uh, but you don't, of course. And you know whether you you know say it explicitly or not, emotions are going to be there. So you might as well give them a place, hmm. you know, where you can discuss them. I think there's a, a deep fear that a lot of people have about emotions in the workplace yeah. because they believe that they are unbridled and 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 feral and will go out of control if 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 let mm. um, loose. Yeah. But the reality is, is that those kinds of emotional, you know, prohibitions actually make emotional experiences much worse. So, mm -hmm. you know, being allowed to grieve, it's interesting. So if you've ever been in a, in a company when somebody, an individual, not a whole bunch of individuals, but one individual has been fired. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, you will see how bad we are at grieving just mm -hmm. generally, but also how, how bad we are at grieving that particular situation. When in reality, you you know, a lot of times if people get fired, you know, as long as the, it, it doesn't indicate, you know, that abuse or, or violence on mm -hmm. another person, if a person's getting fired, that means that they were not right for that role. Yeah. And this is an opportunity for, for everybody to start again. And the only reason it's terrible is because there are material consequences to it, which can be mitigated if people own up to it, if companies own up to it and give proper severance. Mm. And there's a shame. There's this idea yeah. that you have been cast out um, as opposed to you've made a decision hmm. to to leave. Yeah. You know, um, my one of my bosses said to me, you know, I would expect all of you. She said to the, her leadership team, she's like, if there comes a time when you're no longer right for this role, hmm. I want you to be the one to tell me that. Hmm. And I don't want to be the one to tell you that. Wow. And uh, that was a really powerful, you know, way of, of, because mm -hmm. when I, when I left that role, you know, for, you know, that's when I came here back to Toronto, I, there were a lot of personal reasons that went into that. It had very little to do with her leadership at all, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's what I referenced. I said, you know, it's, it's, I'm no longer right for this. Mm -hmm. I have other priorities right now and they're going to get in the way of what this role needs. Yeah. Uh, she was very appreciative of that. And so we made it quite, the transition was very, you know, convivial and rational and nobody was upset. And well, I mean, people were kind of sad, but you know, it wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. Bringing yourself, your emotional self to yeah. work means, you know, it's kind of like this, you actually have to have more mastery yes. of your emotions. You bring them to work. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't quite understand. If you don't experience emotional experiences at work, um, you're actually a less mature human mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm.
Because there's, there isn't this division between the head and everything else, right? <laughs> well, I, I, I never believed Descartes anyway, so no. But, you know, this made me think of an interesting um, thing. Like, what do you think an, um, an advantage to bringing a social scientist in, in, in this kind of environment, social, cultural environment? Would the social sciences actually help um, some of these teams um, recognize and express um, emotion? I actually don't think that's a foregone conclusion, mm. to be honest. And I think that's partly because one can study social science and human behavior and have very little mastery of one's own mm. human behavior. I mean, I, I experienced this in graduate school. Some of the deepest ironies working as a graduate student in, you know, in sociology, uh, it's some of the most exploitive labor, you know, you've ever yeah. had. And you're working for highly educated Marxists. It's yeah. incredible. But I mean, by, you know, uh, by showing um, the connection between uh, how people by translating the users stories, and by giving emotion is right space in that story, you know, well, but that's all well and good if people don't have mastery over themselves. Yeah, okay. So you're not going to be prepared to mm. grapple with yeah. the, the deeper insight. Yeah, if you don't have a space in yourself to kind of grow as a person. Yeah. And to recognize a higher order of thinking. So that actually and comes I, with a challenge, right? For the for the social scientist that comes into those teams. Oh, ex absolutely. And in fact, this is the next book I think I'm writing. Oh, great. That, <laughs> you know, being a researcher, particularly one that focuses on human behavior, hmm. you are constantly telling people bad news and you're constantly bucking up against mm. their lack of ability to grapple with emotions just generally I would say or human experiences mm. just generally we're all humans are flawed and, and uh, as creatures and so we have a lot of these human dramas that we cook up you know um, especially when we get into groups and especially when you know there's mm. uh, pressure or scarcity or, uh, you know, any kind of stress. And yeah. so these, this is just a recipe for, you know, defense mechanisms to kind of clash. Yeah, yeah. And as a researcher, your whole job is to bring, like, to trigger your coworkers. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's it's extremely difficult to mm -hmm. do this without a mastery over yourself. Yeah. And it's it's very difficult to do this in a way that makes you, uh, you know, at times, and I'll confess, I myself, I've been despondent. Mm -hmm. The, the challenge of bringing forth, you know, real, real human reactions to this product or service that has been created or you have created and only to find, you know, people rejecting, yeah. you know, exactly what you found and, and looking for ways to undermine its, its truth claims and, and validity and, you know, mm. what was your sample size and, you know, all of these crazy, and you're yeah. like, wait, the fact that even one person said this should be a problem for you. Yeah, yeah. I think I, it, this reminds me of, you know, the, the attachment to super fans when it comes to um, inside product teams, when it comes to especially products with a lot of longevity. Like I remember yes. when, when I was, and, and you have a, a lot of bias when you, you, when you can only connect with those type of users. I remember when I was working for Coca-Cola, we had this alternative reality in which everybody was somebody that their own grandfather has poured a Coca-Cola to them and had meaningful yes. conversation around the dinner table. And you have all that heritage of, 
emotion and association that you have with the product. And um, most of the times as a marketeer, these were the kind of people that I, I felt very safe to engage with and express emotion because, you know, they tell you a narrative which, which is ultimately extremely positive. Um, right. and, and that makes it very difficult for you to kind of engage with with the ones that are new to the product with the ones that might have a, a more you know complex and messy relationship with your product that doesn't tell you the same things but okay. I think you're right I mean it ultimately comes back to your own ability as a person inside that team inside that company to know how to deal with those emotions either from your users or from yourself as a reaction to those users yeah so, well the, uh, meta, the meta level mm. is a whole other order of play yeah yeah. If, you, if, you, if you're talking to people who are product owners and maybe they have an emotional um, facility where they can appreciate the symbolic, they can appreciate the nostalgic relationships mm-hmm. and has with their product, but they have not done the metacognition of their own emotional states yeah, yeah. to recognize that when you're saying this is a brand new customer, has no history with this product, mm. there's nothing to evoke here. And then they have to recognize that their defense mechanisms are kicking in. Hmm. That's a higher level of play. Yeah. And and what does it mean to the, that person that is there in that team, right? Especially if you ha- you are a researcher that is not inside the system, but you're on a contract basis, you don't really have the base of a foundational trust with those people to be able to kind of gently lead in a direction that would do a bit generate a bit of self-reflection right right well it, i mean there's pluses and minuses i mean you know on the other hand you could say as an external person you have this hmm. right you have a professional stranger role and a lot of times when you're on the inside you know your organizational identity may be tied to things like your position in the hierarchy yes, um, yes. and we know that you know social scientists who work inside corporations rarely, if ever, get very high in that hierarchy, mm. even though they're very well trained and, and professional, uh, you're not going to find a, a vice president of, of ethnography, you yeah. know, yeah. in in most companies, uh, in 99% of companies, you may not even find a director level, you mm. know, at much less an anthropologist that becomes like a CEO, for example, you don't see that very often at all. So you could say, oh, well, you have the advantage of being an internal person and the rapport, and you've got the insider identity, yeah. and yeah. people will trust you more, and you can work over time, your yes. time horizons are much longer. Yeah. That's all true. However, at the same time, you may be better off Hmm. being the professional stranger uh and we know you know simil tells us this that the Mm -hmm. stranger has a very important role yes in societal change and innovation yes Mm -hmm. but you know in this very complex reality um how do you feel the academic world is preparing um and i mean social scientists that that want to work with 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 organizations or with businesses in which ways training um kind of helps you deal with all of those things before you go in well i think it's doing a terrible job frankly Mm. it's doing a bad job in a lot of ways the first thing that i noticed in social science advanced graduate level training is that they have an aversion to applied settings Mm. Because, and I understand this, there is a fear of colonization. You know, Mm -hmm. if you are focusing only on market-based activities, you begin to employ the logic of the market in evaluating value of all things. That's a legitimate concern. That said, however, the truth is is that a great deal of social life is Mm market-based. 
and likewise a great deal of social life is technological so you know that tension i understand where it comes from but more and more of today's life is technologically mediated and so social scientists in particular have a duty to endeavor to understand this life this mm. social life. So generally, I would say that, you know, traditional academic locations are not embracing either one of those social locations very well. But secondly, the main issue that I see with advanced graduate training is this assumption that everyone will be a professor. And it's very heartbreaking, because, you know, personally, it broke my heart that I did not become a professor, because there was no job for me. Mm. And there is no job for, you know, 75% of the graduates and PhD programs. This is not an individual as, you know, C. Wright Mills would say that mm. this is not a private problem. This is a public issue. Mm. It's not that you are not a good sociologist or anthropologist. It's that there aren't enough jobs for PhDs in the academy. Mm. So both of those things together do concern me a little bit. There's, there's you know, shoots of green in some places, I'm surprised at the, you know, resilience of many graduates that I have met, some of whom are very sure before even going in that they didn't want to go into academia, much to the chagrin of their supervisors. Yeah. And I, I understand that's very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they are completely happy to pursue their own, but they look uh, they have to look outside of their supervisory committee in order to get mentorship. Yeah. And that's too bad. They shouldn't have to do that. And and do you think they're... they're yeah, go ahead. No, nope, that's it. <laughs> I was wondering if you know of any spaces where there there's a deeper conversation and reflection on the role of academia or social science in society and how, how in nowadays, right? And how does it impact the need for training and, and the shape of the degrees that are being um, developed? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. There's There's been a long history of, you know, research into the human capital aspect of academia and, and you know, a resistance to that because it mm -hmm. reduces, you know, education, which yes. is enlightenment, edification, mm -hmm. self-improvement. Uh, it reduces it to mere training in service of capital. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, that's, that is a, a simplification. Nobody would pursue a graduate level degree if all they wanted to do was get a quote unquote job. I mean, they'd be crazy. Graduate degrees are too hard. You can get jobs without graduate degrees. So there, there has been a long history of that kind of like human capital analysis, which is problematic. There hasn't been such a good analysis on self-identification, self-exploration hmm. of uh, academics and training. There's some because of this, you know, deep crisis, basically, in the um, employability of mm -hmm. PhDs. So there's some soul searching. And I would say it hasn't really graduated beyond the hand wringing uh, into legitimate scholarship. But there's been a, quite a bit of um, autoethnographic writing, I won't call it autoethnography per se, where PhDs are exploring you know, their, their autoethnographic experiences with the institution itself and reflecting back on to how mm -hmm. it shaped them and the choices that they made and the structure and agency struggle yeah. that they have. That is emerging. I would like to see more of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, <laughs> the irony, of course, is in order to see more of that, someone needs a tenure track job that employs them to do this. <laughs> 
and there's not that many of them. So um, for, for our listeners that are maybe in, still in university, considering uh, what are their choices when it comes to um, either going into academic track with social science or even exploring business, what, what would you recommend them? What, what advice would you give them that would help them kind of find their own answers in, in, in that? Well, it's interesting you should say that. Uh, some of you may have read an article in the New York Times about a, a course at Yale that, about happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read the article, and I actually was familiar with some of the literature. Um, this is actually not new. The Yale course was just a, a it's a newer edition, but there's several other courses um, that have been, you know, on the horizon for some time. It, it basically stems out of um, positive psychology. So many people who've studied psychology are familiar with the, the concept of learned helplessness. Uh, Martin Seligman, and he was so aghast with that, and it's used particularly by CIA um, uh, interrogators, that he felt he had a duty to do the opposite, explore learned optimism, <laughs> which he did, his book called Learned Optimism. Uh, it's actually quite a good book. Uh, exploring what it takes to be happy uh, in that book is great. Uh, there's several other courses that you can take. The syllabi are, are online. Another book I, I just started reading, and it's called, it's it's about, it's used at uh, University of Indiana or Illinois, one mm-hmm. of those two, I think. can't remember which one it is. Um, and it's called... Uh, happiness, deciding, hang on, I'm actually looking at it right now, and I'm trying to figure out what it's called, because the Kindle book doesn't tell me. <laughs> unlocking, unlocking the mysteries of psychological happiness. Okay. So, understanding, it's written by, you know, researchers, socio- uh, psychologists who actually study psychology, or the psychology of happiness. Um. And the, the psychology of happiness is really going to help you understand that you might be making decisions based on prestige or status mm-hmm. um, instead of overall psychological wealth, which includes, you know, a measure of financial wealth, but it also includes social relationships, health, well-being, mm-hmm. uh, these concepts, you know. Uh, we're not given a lot of signals in contemporary life to pay attention to those things. Yeah. So you kind of have to make it yourself, unfortunately. That's great. We'll put a link to uh, those two books in our episode for um, for our listeners to, to have a look on them. Um, and one last sure. quick question because before we close it in because we're already at our time limit. What, what advice would you give product managers like interested in experimenting with bringing a social science in, a, in an innovation process? How would be a way that they could, you know, dip their toes into this world um, and just experiment? I think the, the best way is to do uh, a project that's low stakes mm. uh, and one that lends itself quite well to uh, qualitative exploration. Not one, uh, so a lot of product managers probably themselves are quantitative in nature and I'm certain that they're their organizational contexts are very quantitative. So it's a mistake to bring in a, a sociologist or an anthropologist into a project that has a deep need for quantitative validity. Mm. So don't pick that one. Pick <laughs> one that is green field and that it is small. Mm. And, you know, it's an exploration of the symbolic nature of such and such. Probably you're innovating. You've got to come up with a new product or service. 
So pick it with nice, nice, clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and with expectations from you and from your, your stakeholders, that this is a way of gathering insight, not a way of making exactly the right thing. We leap too quickly to solutions. So try to pick something that is intended to be an exploration. And the final advice I would give actually to a product manager, pick your social scientist carefully. Mm. You know, do not pick somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, The worst thing you can do is is get the wrong person, somebody Mm. who's maybe too academic, for example, and then you'll just hang up on that project for the rest of your Mm -hmm. life. Uh, Don't get somebody who doesn't know how to manage the innovation process, Mm -hmm. has no experience with it. Don't do that. And also, don't get a designer who says they know how to do social science research. Mm -hmm. Get somebody who's trained, Mm -hmm. who has bona fide experience and and education. so that they can actually use real social science. We see a lot of like so-called design sprints yeah. uh, moderated by, facilitated by people who don't have research training and they do very low quality research work and it drags down the, field. the validity mm-hmm. of the entire thing. So don't do that. Choose your social scientists carefully. Make okay. sure they have training. That is an awesome advice. <laughs> So with this one, Sam, we just want to thank you so much for um, being with us today. Uh, It has been a wonderful conversation. Um, And yeah, I hope you have a nice day. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure and uh, have happy Wednesday to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Check our social media, our website and worldpodcast.com for other interesting content. Don't forget to come back next Tuesday for more interesting conversations.